for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. The teaching text comes from Luke chapter 4, 21 through 32. He, he began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. All right, good morning, everybody. You know when you have a good appetite? And you sit down to the meal and the plate's in front of you and you got your fork and your knife and your spoon and you're just ready. We're going to feast on the scriptures today. There's a lot going on here. And so I hope that you'll have uh, your Bible open. It's a good habit, I think, to bring your paper Bible uh, so you can mark it up. And it ends up being kind of a living journal. Have a pen, have your journal handy, and we're going to cover some really cool ground uh, in the scriptures today. So the text that we just read is part two And we studied part one last week. Uh, If you were here, Peter Wyatt led us through the first 21 verses or so of uh, this passage. And in part one, Jesus goes to his hometown, and the hometown kid is invited to get up and do the lectionary reading, the the scripture assigned for the day, and then to offer his own commentary on the text. And uh, the scroll of Isaiah is handed to him. So he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. So this, this will be familiar if you know your Bible or if you were here last week. And so he, he begins from Isaiah 61. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus, taking the posture of a rabbi, sits down in in order to instruct the people. And he simply says, this scripture from Isaiah 61 is now fulfilled in your hearing. Now, this was an audacious claim. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Jesus is saying, in effect, Isaiah was talking about me. I'm the anointed one. The Spirit is on me I'm the one chosen by God to preach good news to the poor and proclaim freedom for the captives and give sight to the blind and so on and so forth. More than is uh, uh, like that you can see right away on the surface of the text, Jesus is making bold messianic claims. 
Now, in part two of the story, we get a sense of how people respond to Jesus' interpretation of the passage. This is in, in the synagogue in Nazareth where Jesus is from. And if you pay attention, and even if you have your Bible open and you scan it right now, there seems to be something a little off about the text. Jesus gets up, he reads the scriptures that have been assigned to him, um, and, and then the people have their response. It says in verse 22, all spoke well of him. Isn't it generally a good thing for all people to speak well of you? Okay. All spoke well of him, and they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. They say, isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And the way that this, this verse reads, it's like Jesus gets up and like everyone's looking at the hometown kid and they think, he did a pretty good job, didn't he? Isn't that Joseph's boy? We're so proud of him. There's kind of an aw shucks nature to uh, verse 22, but then Jesus' response to them feels really weird. Jesus' response, it comes across as if he's misinterpreted what they've said or if he's insecure or defensive. And the way that he responds to them is almost off-putting. He says in verse 23, he said to them, Surely you'll quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. So evidently, in between his baptism and coming back to Nazareth, Jesus did some miracles in Capernaum which is a weird response to all people speaking well of him and being amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And then he goes on to reference what feel like two really random stories from the Old Testament, a story about the prophet Elijah and a story about the prophet Elisha. And before you know it, the crowd has such a violent response to Jesus' instruction that they try to take him by force and throw him off the cliff. The practice was in an execution like this, if the, if the person didn't die, they would be, have been ready to stone him. But then Jesus walks through the crowd. Like, what is going on in this passage? Is Jesus, you know, just hasn't quite gotten his bearings in ministry? This is, you know, one of his first public gigs. What is the deal here? Okay, we're going to study some cool stuff here in the passage, and I'm going to offer a couple of, of keys that will help us to unlock what's happening here. The first thing I want you to consider is the context in which the story is happening. This is Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. I've been there. I've seen a little brow of a hill. Was this the one? I don't know. But this story it takes place in Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. It's his hometown. Nazareth is in uh, the northern part of Israel. So if this is Israel, uh, you've got the Sea of Galilee, you've got the Jordan River, you've got the Dead Sea, you've got Jerusalem. You can all see my hand perfectly, right? Well, the point is Nazareth is up here. It's in the northern part of Israel. It's in a region that in the Old Testament was referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles because the, the area was largely populated with people who were not Jewish. And in the 2nd century B.C., so somewhere around 150, 200 years before Jesus comes onto the scene, there's this guy named Aristobulus the Maccabean. The, the, the Maccabees is a really cool story, but I don't have time to get into it today. But Aristobulus the Maccabean comes into Nazareth along with the whole region and kicks out all of the Gentiles, all of the non-Jews. And, and he refounded this town of Nazareth to be a Jewish settlement. 
So kicks out all of the Gentiles, all of the non-Jews, and brings in Jewish people to populate uh, the town, refounding it as a Jewish community to, to repopulate and reestablish the town. And because it had this settler's identity, meaning they were all displaced and went here for the purpose of being a super Jewish town, and because the Maccabees, who again, they were in that kind of intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Maccabees had this like, like, like fight the system attitude. They're the ones who'd kicked out the Greeks. They reestablished, especially, and all the Gentiles in Nazareth, they had this like fight the system attitude. And so the people in the town of Nazareth have been reestablished, or they've repopulated this town, and coming off the heels of a really long history of foreign oppression, go back to the Assyrians and the Babylonians and then the Medes and then the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans, you've got this community that has this like us against the world mentality. The people who lived in Nazareth were fiercely tribalistic and antagonistic to Gentiles. The Gentile just means non-Jewish person. So that's one of the first things you need to know about Nazareth. It's a settlement community with that backstory. The second thing that you need to understand about this passage is that when Jesus gets up to preach and offer commentary on Isaiah 61, he's preaching from a passage of Scripture that they really liked already. And uh, because, because Jesus, because when this passage, Isaiah 61, is read in its entirety, it's a passage that's very comforting to people who have this antagonistic attitude toward outsiders. If you were to go back and read Isaiah 61 in its entirety, it seems to tell the story of how someday God's Messiah is going to come to make this, the Gentiles subservient to the Jews. And in fact, we know that this is how they were reading Isaiah 61 based on the way that they interpreted Isaiah 61 from Hebrew to Aramaic, the language that most of them spoke. Because in translating it, I'm going to show you the, the Aramaic rendering of this passage. In, in translating it, they added words and phrases to the text that reveal how they understood its meaning, okay? So this was the Aramaic rendering of, of the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. This is called the Targum. And the words in italics are going to repre represent words and phrases that they added or they, they added their own spin to it. This is Isaiah uh, 61, 6 and 7 in the Targum. It says, you shall eat the possessions of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall be indulged. Instead of your being ashamed and confounded, two for one, the benefits I promise you I will bring to you. And the Gentiles will be ashamed who were boasting in their lot. In other words, read in its entirety, they understood Isaiah 61 to mean something that went a little bit like this. God's Messiah is going to come. When He comes, He is going to tend Israel's wounds. He's going to establish justice for His people. He will rebuild the structures and the systems of the nation, and He will put the Gentiles in their rightful place. And for a resettled Jewish community living in an area surrounded by despised Gentiles, coming on the heels of centuries of oppression from all those different nations that I've already mentioned, a, a passage like this would have been for them like their national anthem. It's like, heck yeah, I'm on board with Isaiah 61. And so... When Jesus gets up to read this scroll, 
they are thinking, this is our kid. And we're giving him a slow pitch right down the middle of the plate, and they're expecting a home run sermon. They know exactly what his talking points are going to be, and they're just salivating at the message that he's about to bring. But Jesus handles the scriptures, he handles the text in a way that nobody saw coming. In what he reads from Isaiah 61, and in what he doesn't read from Isaiah 61. So first, Jesus does some in real time editing of the text. He drops a phrase from Isaiah 61, says to bind up the brokenhearted. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Jesus omits that from his reading of the passage when he stands up in the synagogue. He didn't read it at all. Instead, he replaces that phrase with a phrase that he took from three chapters earlier in Isaiah 58. If you've never read Isaiah 58, it's powerful. It's a call for God's people to do the work of justice. So he takes this phrase of binding up the brokenhearted and he removes it from the text and instead he puts in place this phrase from Isaiah 58 about setting the oppressed free. And then he stops reading halfway through verse 2. He doesn't even touch the rest of the passage, but it's noteworthy that he stops halfway through verse 2 of Isaiah 61. That verse begins, the Lord has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But that, that phrase ends in the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus omits that from his reading of the text. He doesn't read that phrase or the rest of the chapter at all, those parts that were chiefly about rebuilding Israel and then subjugating the Gentiles. So we just read it and it's in the Bible and we miss it, but, but Jesus' original listeners would have known this kid's up to something fishy. Effectively, what he's done is he's taken a passage that they had previously understood to be about God's material blessings for them, how the Messiah was ultimately going to come with this Israel-first agenda and care for them and build them up and bind their wounds and bring judgment against those they hate, and he turns it instead into a message of mercy and a call to to action to join him as God's anointed, as the Messiah, in proclaiming good news to the poor and laboring for justice for the oppressed and doing works of compassion for all, like giving back sight to the blind. It's as if Jesus stood up in his hometown synagogue and he said, Ask not what God can do for you, but what you can do for the sake of others, even your enemies. He was meddling. Now, another insight that's going to make sense of this passage a little bit more, because we still have this, this, this primary quandary of why the disjointedness between what they said of Jesus and how Jesus responded to them. Verse 22 said, again, all spoke well of him. Okay, well, if he's being, you know, subversive, maybe they liked the sermon. Well, if the, the, the phrasing here in Greek, all spoke well of him, is actually a little bit ambiguous. Uh, it's, it's, more, it's very woodenly rendered, all witnessed concerning him. So they all had a reaction to what he said. Did they like it or did they dislike it? 
Did they witness in his favor or did they witness against him? Well, considering that the next act they took was to try to publicly execute him, I have to think they didn't like the sermon. They witnessed against him. It says uh, the, the gracious words, the words of mercy. They, they witnessed against him because they were amazed at the words of mercy instead of the words of judgment that they took Isaiah 61 to chiefly be about. These words were surprising coming from his lips. And then the line, is this not Joseph's son, takes a tone more like, who does this kid think he is? Now it begins to make sense. If we zoomed out a little bit and put this in the context of what's going on in Luke's gospel, the, the gospel begins, we've got these fabulous birth narratives uh, that we, we talked about in Advent and then in Christmas, the beginning of Epiphany. Jesus is miraculously born. He spends 30 years in relative obscurity. He submits to baptism, a baptism of repentance at the hands of his, his cousin where he's affirmed as the beloved son of the Father. The Spirit rests on him. He's sent into the wilderness where for 40 days he's tempted. And I, I don't can't remember if it's in Luke or if it's in Mark. I love the line. It just says, and the wild animals were with him and angels attended him. I wish I knew what that meant. But Jesus returns from the wilderness full of the Spirit. And what does he do? He, he goes back to his hometown and he preaches this manifesto for the kingdom of God that's breaking into their midst through his own messianic ministry. And the people he grew up with, hated his message of mercy and of mission so much that they attempted to kill him for it. And the careful reader of the text will think, my goodness, if this is how his ministry begins, I wonder how his ministry is going to end. And immediately it illuminates something the Apostle John said in chapter 1 of his gospel. He said of Jesus, he came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who would receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He came to that which was his own, but his own, the people in his hometown, the people who, you know, were his, like, t-ball coach, kids who knew him growing through puberty, the people who knew him at all stages of his development didn't receive him. So he would go instead to those who would. Why on earth would the people who could have seen this clearly remarkable, anointed person, like if they didn't know him in his fullness, they would have known that something is different about Jesus. Why did his own not receive him? And why is it that, that sometimes people who have the most Bible knowledge, who've attended church the longest, who have served on every committee, who have brought potato salad to every single church function, can be among the absolute meanest, most judgmental people on planet Earth. I think that what can happen is that people forget what it's like to be outside of God's family. They forget what it's like to not have this story that's structuring and narrating and informing like how you live. And forgetting what it's like to be outside of God's family and outside of God's story, a prideful spirit can take root, a spirit that falsely elevates above like the ignoramuses out there. In settling into the comforts of being an insider, they cease any outward-facing activities to bring people in 
to, to God's family. And in time, this, this forgetting and that pride and that turning within deforms one's soul in such a way that they'd come to hate the very message of mercy that led them first to believe. What a tremendous tragedy. Yet I recognize that I can also be guilty of this. If you tell the story of the the prodigal son, I am much more inclined to be like the older brother, the, the haughty spirit, the judgmental one. I can be guilty of this in my desire to call the church to maturity and to align with the truth can do it in such a way that I put mercy and mission on the back burner and readily turn the good news of the gospel that's intended for the poor and for the outsider into good advice about getting your act together. And pride can easily settle in, and I forget what is it that Jesus came here to do. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor to proclaim freedom for the captives and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. From where I sit, I think so many people right now are being deceived in innumerable ways. By the way, when you're being deceived, you don't know that you're being deceived. So many people are being deceived right now. Within the church, I think that the, some of the deception that is happening is, it reflects the kind of hard-heartedness that I've reflected here, that kind of haughty spirit. I think it's often manifested with obsessive culture war and, and politics. And I think in, the, in recent years, many people within the church, and I would say particularly younger people, have been aware of and been bothered by this haughty spirit, this judgmentalism, this obsession with culture war and with politics, and then into the middle of all of that, you bring COVID onto the scene. And for a heartbreaking number of people, COVID has has initially softened and then completely severed ties to the Christian community. And as a result, many people have turned within to find a source of truth. I would just say, I don't know anyone very actively deconstructing right now who who did not begin by distancing themselves from Christian community. Now, I've talked about deconstruction. There are lots of good questions, lots of good fruit, I think, that's happening there. But it begins with many people by distancing themselves and then severing ties from Christian community and then turning within themselves to find truth. Or they've turned to what is, in my opinion, untrustworthy sources to make sense of life. I don't know if you're reading the Bible along with the church. Uh, We've got little, you know, uh, bookmarks that we're reading uh, through Jeremiah right now. And I'm struck how many times as Jeremiah preaches to the people, he indicts the false prophets saying, "They're, they're prophesying lies in my name. When someone speaks with the authority of God and yet they prophesy lies, they're being deceived. I think many people are being deceived, and in the chronic anxiety of the last few years, it has felt much more difficult to hear and to recognize and to believe the truth, because lies are shouted, but the truth whispers, which is why again and again through the prophets, you see that word, listen, 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 
listen. And the prophets indict the people. They did not listen. They would not listen. Or they listened to those who prophesied lies in my name. I think for those of us who consider ourselves uh, believers, the, the intensity of our environments and the reality of spiritual opposition invites us to adapt a posture of courage. Uh, we need, in many ways, to toughen up. We need to bulk up on our, our knowledge and our love of the truth. We need to practice all of our spiritual disciplines. But along the way, we must not lose an outward-facing posture of mercy toward those who are on the outside and toward those who are slipping away. Mercy. I've been struck for several years, both by this word, mercy, and by Titus chapter 3. Who reads the book of Titus? It's fantastic. Paul writes to Pastor Titus at around the same time he's writing to Timothy. This is Titus chapter 3, 1 through 7. Titus, uh, Paul, speaking pastor to pastor, says to Titus, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Toward whom? Toward everyone. Why? Because at one time, we were just like them. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient. There's that word again, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice, hatred, and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that... Having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of life eternal. And Paul, commenting on what he's already said, is like, hey, what I said just now was good. This is a trustworthy saying. In Titus, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Why? Because we at one time were also among them, deceived, hating each other. But when the kindness and mercy of God our Savior appeared, He washed us and we were given a fresh start. It's because of His mercy. Therefore, be kind and be peaceable toward everyone. Be gentle. Many of us need to repent of having hard hearts. It's easy for our hearts to grow calloused because the world is a difficult place to live because there's so many people who behave poorly inside and outside of the church. Many of us need to repent of hard hearts, and we have to keep front and center Jesus' mission to show mercy and to seek and to save the lost. Jesus ended this sermon before they tried to kill Him by referencing these two stories from the prophets. First was the story of Elijah, and in the story of Elijah, Elijah goes out from the people and the place of God to a widow in Zarephath, to a Gentile. 
And similarly, Jesus, this, uh, there's so much great stuff that I couldn't even get into in the structure of the text. This is embedded within Isaiah 61. Similarly, uh, Jesus instructs his people that we must go out from the places of comfort and extend the mercy of Jesus to people. And the text gives us three ways. The first is through proclamation. People need to hear the gospel. He sent me to proclaim good news to the poor. The second is to advocate for justice. Where are there signs of death and decay and injustice in our city? Where are there signs that our city and our world do not reflect God's shalom, as Peter talked about last week, that was present in the garden? There the church is meant to be at those pain points advocating for justice. And then, and then finally, commending to us that we do works of mercy, giving sight back to the blind. I wonder, for, for you and for each of us and us as a church, how are we being invited to go out, perhaps from our social circles, perhaps from our physical building, our church building, from our, from our comfort? How are we being invited to go out, uh, to take action in Jesus' name, to share the gospel, to advocate for justice, and to do mercy? The second story that he tells is a story of the prophet Elisha, who was living in such a way that a Gentile foreigner came to him someone who would have been despised, Naaman, the Syrian general. And Naaman comes to Elisha. He was attracted by what he had seen and heard in the prophet. And similarly, we who follow Jesus are meant to live such good lives, sharing the gospel, doing the work of justice, extending mercy, that people who are on the outside of our social circles and outside the family of God are attracted in. And I wonder if you might consider your own life. Are, are you living in such a way that anyone might be prompted to ask the question, why are they like that? Or you might have people knocking on your door relationally that you, you haven't adequately appreciated the opportunity for mercy or for mission, people that you should pay attention to. I'm sure that in a room of this size and to you know, the folks who are still watching online, the folks who listen to the podcast, that they're... Uh, those who are part of our community or on the fringes of our community who feel lost and, and don't know how to answer the, the question that Pilate asked, what is truth? And I want to just affirm the message that Jesus said of himself. Jesus is the one anointed by God. He comes to us from the Father full of grace and truth. And Jesus would extend you mercy. Uh, Paul said in his letter to, to Jude, is that Paul? I don't remember. He said, be merciful to those who doubt. He would show you mercy, and yet I would also commend to you that he is the way and the truth and the life. I would, I would challenge you to, to consider your heart is a beautiful thing, but it is an unreliable source of truth. The truth that you most need is beyond you and outside you. So I would commend to you to get to know for the first time or again the person of Jesus Christ to explore or to remember what he's really like and to do that in Christian community. I have questions. I have doubts. I have things that I don't have, I have lots and lots of things about which I don't have complete knowledge. It is safe to say that. And it is safe to have faith and yet continue to seek understanding. Like it's not a, it's not a zero-sum game, faith and doubt. On the one hand, the Scriptures tell us to be merciful to those who doubt, and yet Jesus also says to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. And we live in this tension. 
And it's okay to be in process, better to be in process in community, feasting together on the scriptures and considering together the Lord Jesus and being in an environment where inviting the Spirit to fill and to transform us than to try to figure this out on, on your own, in your room alone, looking at your phone. The truth that you most need is outside of you. And I commend to you the person of Jesus Christ. Remember the song, A Good, Good Father? I've heard many stories of what they say you're like. At the table and receiving communion, which we do weekly as a church, we see and we remember clearly what God in Christ is like. And to see Jesus is to see the spitting image of his Father. And we see in Jesus at the table of one who gave his life for the life of the world. And we would, be, we would do well as a church to center our life around him. Everyone is building their life around something. It could be your children, it could be your career, it could be the quest for one of those things. What we aspire to do as a community is to build our life around the person of Jesus Christ together. To do that, it takes, it takes honesty. This is where I am. It takes an earnest spirit. You know, the scriptures say, uh, without faith it's impossible to please God because everyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And yet, so today you may just say, I, I'm, I'm going to, with my, my volition, aspire to be a person who crosses the line into the community of faith. And maybe you'd even ask the Holy Spirit, would you give me the grace to believe or the grace to believe again? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I recognize that uh, my words on their own are an insufficient offering to do the work that needs to be done. And so, Lord Jesus, I offer these words that I've spoken. If any of them are an error, correct me. And where I'm in alignment with your truth, Lord, would you accompany those words with the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit manifested in the hearts of people who move toward belief and move toward community. Lord Jesus, we invite your Spirit to be with us as we receive Holy Communion today. Would you pour out your Spirit on the bread and the wine and make it be so much more than just that for us, but may it be a means through which we experience the presence and the power of the risen Christ, now glorified and seated at the right hand of the Father. I pray that you'd do the things that we cannot do, Lord. I pray that you'd forgive the sinner, that you'd encourage the weary, that you would give the gift of faith to the doubter, that you'd give insight into your scriptures, and that you'd bind us to one another in love. Forgive us for ways in which we've had hard hearts toward those inside and outside your family, and help us to be people who, remembering your mercy toward us, characterized by a gentle and mercy spirit, merciful spirit toward others. Lord Jesus, we pray this in your name and to your glory. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.